Hello everyone, welcome to a very special episode of Cricket with an Accent. This is your host, Saqib Ali, and today we'll be taking uh, a deeper dive into one of the most mythical, historical f- figures that are part of the cricket narrative. And as they always say, history is kind, usually by the writers for their own. In this case, the subject here was abandoned, even by the hist- historical writers or the game chroniclers from England. And I'm talking about the one and only Harold Howard, and helping me do the honors here is one of the most celebrated writers of our times, Mr. Duncan Hamilton, uh, who's who's kind enough to take time on a busy schedule with a paperback release of Injury Time coming up to come here and talk to us in Cricket with an Accent. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Hamilton. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here. No, I mean, uh, this, is a, this, is a, this is a big moment for my podcast because I try to bring in conversations that are timeless, uh, more of a magazine style where anyone can tune into it, you know, uh, months from now, years from now. And this is a topic that's been brought to life by you and uh, many others. And this is why this book really stands out. But before we talk about Larwood, let's uh, get a couple of things on you, because this is normally on my podcast, I ask about my guests. We all know your, like, you know, your contributions. So from a podcasting point of view, I do tennis and cricket, but my level is very pedestrian. You are a world-class writer. So I'm very curious, how do you manage football and cricket together? Are you a football purist or a cricket tragic or both? What's the equation and how do you switch on and off between the two sports? Yeah, well, I am really. I mean, I suppose because I um, grew up with sport. I mean, sport was such an integral part of my part of my early life. And at that point, um, when you're about 12 or 13 and you start to think seriously about what you might want to do with your life, it suddenly occurred to me that journalism would be the best road for me because it meant that I could go and watch football and cricket free, absolutely free of charge. I could sit in a press box and I could go and meet people um, who were actually playing or kind of writing about the game. And um, although I was born in Newcastle, which is in the northeast of England, um, I grew up in Nottingham. My father was a coal miner. And um, most of the pits where where we lived in the northeast of England closed and he moved to Nottingham, basically, to get a job. And um, anyone who knows the layout of Nottingham will know that it's a truly sporting city because you've got the football ground, uh, sorry, the two football grounds and the cricket ground are so close together that probably Tiger Woods would hit them with a five iron um, easily. Um, and it was just part of, it, it, it was just the integral part of my life, the kind of thing that I was, um, that I lived to kind of do, which was either to play football or to play, play cricket. Um, and as I said, journalism just seemed to be the kind of natural route for, route for me, because when I was at school, I was really only interested in, um, English sport, history and art. And so those four things in a way have contributed to the kind of books that I've um, subsequently written. That's kind of fascinating. And just from a a personal vantage point, because I enjoyed this book so much, is tennis part of your uh, ecosystem? Would you ever want to do maybe a book on a tennis player down the road? Is that something that excites you? Oh, I would love to do one. Yeah, I, I, I really would love to do one. John McPhee did a fabulous short book in, I think it was the 1960s or the early 70s, where he spent two weeks at Wimbledon with a photographer. 
and he just wrote about uh, about that year's tournament, but also about the um, uh, about the atmosphere and the history. And I would love to have a go at doing something like that. Um, I mean, I know that it must be rather in the same way that it is covering cricket, be terribly exhausting if you're a full time tennis writer, because despite the fact that you might be in first class hotels, and I know that they're very well look, looked after in terms of that everybody's brought to the press room. Um, I think the kind of constant sort of traveling really would be very difficult for me. Um, and and uh, that you wouldn't be able to kind of, I, I, I wouldn't be able to write about it for the full 12, um, 12 months. But um, yeah, I mean, I would like to do some tennis just in uh, um, the same way that I would love to write a uh, boxing uh, book if um, if uh, something came up. I mean, really, um, I, I love sport. I think the only sport I don't really follow is Formula One, but then I've never passed a, uh, um, a uh, um, driving test. So I'm not really into cars. Um, uh, I've never really been into cars. Uh, I mean, I did actually try, um, but I realised that I was one of the small percentage of people who had just absolutely no idea about and clue or confidence about how to actually drive. That's that's interesting. <laughs> uh, so we'll leave uh, F1 for maybe another day. But uh, before we get into Larwood, uh, you know, your, uh, your novel, Injury Time, is uh, the paperback release coming up in August. So why a novel after so many successful books? I'm sure you've asked this. Is it, uh, it seems like it's inspired from some of the real life figures, but uh, why, why changing gears here? I think it was one of those things that I'd always wanted to do, really. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, I've got an unpublished un, un, uh, novel that I wrote about 20 years ago, sitting in a box somewhere here. And I thought, well, I'll just have a go at writing a football novel because it's very difficult to write a cricket novel. Um, I think, again, just as, just as it's very difficult to put, film, uh, uh, put cricket onto film in a kind of fictional sense, it's, it, it is also very difficult to kind of put it on the page in a fictional sense. And so I thought, oh, well, I will have a go at doing a, a football novel. And I'd agreed to do it as early, I think, as 2019, but, uh, but I had a couple of books that I had to finish before then. And um, so I said to the publisher, I said, I will start it in March 2020. And of course, in March 2020, that's when we went into lockdown. And and so I knew exactly what I was going to do. And um, it meant that, um, well, because I couldn't go to any archives, because I couldn't go and interview anybody, it, it kind of meant that I had a kind of project that I could just do from home and it was absolutely lovely because it just meant I could get up in the morning and just tell myself a uh, fictional story um and I found the writing um to be so much I, I, I wouldn't say easier but in uh, but when you are writing non-fiction you're constantly rechecking facts some of which you know some of which you think you know and you're going back and forward whereas with a novel of course you can just make things up Hmm. So, again, I'm not a football purist, not even close. I follow World Cups, but I definitely know it's the most beautiful game. And a lot of my friends, uh, you know, they, they, you know, football has captured the imagination. And when I told someone that I'm having you, like a close friend of mine, and he was very excited. So, George Best is one of the, the books that I'm 
gonna definitely get after reading Larwood because that's something I'm more intrigued about a figure from the past. But if you're sticking to injury time, is Frank Mallory, is it fair to say, is it a recreation of uh, Brian Clough, you know, the manager who you have covered uh, dominantly in your career, your association with the game? Is it a fair uh, analogy here? No, it isn't. I think there's probably about 10% of Brian Clough in Frank Mallory. Um, but I think everybody's jumped to the conclusion that it's going to be Brian Clough. And so they <laughs> kind of stuck with that. I was waiting for somebody to kind of pick up on on the kind of man that I was really alluding to, but no one has yet. So um, I'll wait and see what anybody does after the paperback comes out. Absolutely. And just a little digression. Uh, Americans made a TV show, uh, Ted Lasso, which is a coach from US going to uh, UK. I don't know if you've seen that and just... Uh, how that factors into, you know, what the football life is for someone who's more like a tennis fan or a cricket fan. Did they capture the nuances there? First of all, I don't know if you've even seen it, so. No, I can't because um, despite the fact that my TV is only four years old, um, <laughs> we, can't, we, can't actually get, uh, we can't actually get Apple on it for some hmm. uh, reason. And so we're actually waiting to uh, change it but it will be one of the first things I do because everybody recommends it to me. And um, from, from kind of what I've heard about the programme, that there is an awful lot of truth in it because I suppose it's like any, any kind of team sport that um, you get such a, such a mix of uh, people and um, some, <laughs> some of them are kind of very rum sort of characters really. And um, you'll kind of get on with some and you won't get on with others. Absolutely. And again, in uh, most of your books, and I'm sure same as the case with the novel Injury Time, uh, it's little beyond the game. It's the, the men who played their lives, their conflicts. And uh, you do tackle depth uh, like, you know, very few writers can. So again, uh, if you want to just give a small insight to the listeners here, you know, what injury time is, it is a relationship between Mallory and Callahan and their conflict and how they brought the club and how the journeys have been. So uh, just yes, a quick... it's really about, I suppose it is really about fame and what happens when you've no longer got fame and whether or not you can ever retire from a game and how you cope with that. And um, I, I always found it very difficult. Uh, um, I, um, I always found it very fascinating about how difficult players find it to retire and what they do after retirement and how it shapes the rest of their lives and about how they're always brought back. Um, I mean, I, um, um, I wrote um, a little cricket book in which came out in 2020 called One Long and Beautiful Summer. And in there, I was writing about Arthur Morris, who, who, um, who was part of the 1948 touring side playing with Bradman which was Bradman's last tour and and he came to and he came to Leeds which is close to where I live now and Headingley is the kind of nearest nearest kind of club to me and um he and I mean he made a fantastic I mean he played this fantastic innings here and the Aussies chased down over 400 to win the test and in 20 2009, when I was writing a book called The Last English Summer, um, I walked into a hotel in Dorset Square, which was the original site of Lords. That's where the first Lords was. 
And I was going the following day to go and watch the 50 over final. And I walked in and there was Arthur Morris. And I started talking about him, uh, talking to him uh, uh, about that day at Headingley. And I just wondered what I was doing it after I'd kind of left. Um, I thought, goodness, you know, that was something that he did so long ago. And yet he's always brought back to that day. And I think that happens with uh, an awful lot of sportsmen that in some ways they kind of want to move on from their lives, but they're always pulled back to the kind of days of their sort of greatest sort of triumph. And I, I, I compared it um, in One Long and Beautiful Summer to the innings that I saw at Headingley in 2019 when Ben Stokes came in and played so magnificently and Jack Leach, and he managed to get England over the line so in the area, so in, in the probably. Um, and I made the point that Ben Stokes will, will be talking about that innings from now until the day he draws his last breath because while he's done so many other things that seems to be the Everest peak really um, and I suppose that's what motivates me as much as anything whether I'm writing Injury Time whether I'm writing about Harold Larwood or George Best is that um, it, and this is one of my favourite sayings is that the best books about sport are never about sport but they're about condition. No, I think that's, uh, that's quite brilliant and that's how we want to see it because for all the fours and the hat tricks and the bouncers, there's YouTube or there's other archive, right? There's what happens between the locker room and what shapes the man or the woman who's actually, you know, uh, doing this craft. I think that's what intrigues me. And, uh, and I think you said the stage beautifully, that leaving that life behind. So how, that brings us to Harold Lawwood. Uh, this is a man who really had a hard time leaving the life behind because he did not do it on his own terms, or at least he was forced to do something. He still had a lot of cricket left in it. So why Loward? I mean, there's enough literature on him. Uh, England has kind of like not been fair to him. At least the book pretty much says he was abandoned by them. So it was like a Trent Bridge local boy thing or, and I'm sure you choose your subjects very carefully. What intrigued about him and why did you bring him back to life in a way that it's such a compelling read and not only you sympathize with him, you start seeing the world through his eyes. Well, I think it goes back an awfully long way because I was brought up in Nottingham, um, the local evening paper, which of course I then went to work for, used to, used to kind of follow anything that he did, even, even after he emigrated. And if he came back, there was always uh, an awful lot of coverage. And um, in the village where I grew up in, when we were starting to play cricket, you had this situation whereby you thought that if you wanted to bowl faster, you had to have a very long run. And you also thought that the longer the run, then the faster you would be, without obviously realising that by the time you got to the crease, you're almost ready to fall over. And um, there was always someone coming up saying, well, you'll never be as fast as Harold Larwood. And I always remembered that, I don't, who on earth is Harold Larwood? I mean, in those days, we were talking about Jon Snow, really, as, a, as uh, far as England fast bowlers were concerned. And... Um, then Larwood came uh, back to um, Nottingham and so there was some good coverage in the local paper. And there were lots of people willing to talk to me about him when I was a teenager. And um, fast forward to probably the end of the century and I was always having a conversation with various cricket people that I saw saying, you know, I can't believe there's not another book about Harold Larwood, that there's not been a biography about Harold Larwood. 
And I think one of the difficult things, Sarib, is that if you're going to write one, you knew that you were going to have to do it in both England and of, and obviously go to Sydney and Adelaide and Brisbane and go and see his daughters. And so I think that probably put off an awful lot of people. The second thing is that there had been so many books about Bodyline. And I think that everybody just saw him through the prism of Bodyline. And I remember saying to Richie Benno, um, you know, books about Bodyline are kind of growing around my office like ivy. Um, which actually um, made him kind of laugh, really. Um, and he was very important um, in the sense that he was connected to one very um, particular thing about Larwood, and he was able to tell me about that. And and so it was very difficult to get the book published at first. I'd, I'd, um, I'd written a book called Provided You Don't Kiss Me, which was about Brian Clough. And before it won William Hill, which is the kind of sports prize over here. Um, I'd, I'd offered Harold Larwood to the same publisher and the same publisher had sent it off to, to one of their readers and they'd said, uh, oh no, no, nobody's heard of Harold Larwood. Um, I don't think this will kind of work. Um, I mean, they'd only obviously only read about 6,000 words of the book and I had yet to write the rest of it. But I was fortunate, really, because provided you don't kiss me, one William Hill. And similarly, about a month before then, there were about five publishers who could see that, yes, there was a particular story there. And the story was always going to be of. And I, uh, let me just say this first. If you'd written it as fiction, nobody would have believed you. Here's a man who who um, who takes part in the, the most infamous test series probably ever ever played um who gets poison pen letters while he's in the country where he's playing and um less than kind of 20 years later he goes back to that country emigrates there lives there successfully and is absolutely fated um i mean it's just a remarkable story it is you know and it's kind of uh, ironic uh, uh that the mcc and the decision makers felt the need to uh, to preserve Ashes and relations with Cricket Australia, they may, made him the scapegoat and pretty much forced him to in this position where he would just, you know, call it a time on his career. And then of all the people, a former Australian cricketer, Fingleton comes to his aid really later in life. And that just opens up the door to like moving to Australia with his family and starting over. So it just defied all logics, you know, like how today in sports is an ecosystem of political societies, always us against them. And uh, I see this in cricket uh, with the fandom. It's uh, it's very divisive. Uh, and then it was just hard to imagine the world from Larwood's point of view. And then, of course, him from the mining background, he had to work his way into cricket. It just comes full circle. Uh, and again, I said this while we were talking before the podcast started recorded. Uh, I saw him as a villain. Not that I have read any books on him, but we saw that Australian miniseries that in India that came out in the 80s. And of course, Don Bradman is Don Bradman. Uh, no point going over his resume. And uh, like most sporting rivalries, uh, there's the other side. And a lot of times the other side is a villain. And there is nothing like in any other sport, I think, with body line, the repercussions it had. So but did you also grow up? I mean, in your early impression of the, of the Larwood years, did you see him as a villain or did you see him like a figure misunderstood or where was... What was your radar of him 
growing no, up? No, I certainly didn't see him as a villain. I saw him as um, as a victim then of the cricketing establishment, and certainly Pelham Warner. I mean, he was a, just a convenient scapegoat, really. Um, I mean, it was, you know, we uh, uh, the distinction between amateurs and professionals in the English game wasn't um, uh, abolished for another 30 years after Bodyline, just under 30 years. And so it was very easy for um, the kind of um, um, cricket establishment, the likes of Warner, to, to, to kind of say that as a professional, Lard was the person who was actually to blame and Bill Vos was to blame and... Um, it was just one of those things that that uh, kind of that uh, kind of happened there because uh, and it also took away from the fact that obviously Warner didn't particularly manage that tour very well. I mean, he had no, I mean, he had no idea really about how to cope when when the um, um, when the con- controversy raised its head, and um, he, I mean, he, I mean, he really didn't have any PR savvy. And um, he couldn't handle Douglas Jardine either. Jardine was going to do what what Jardine was going to do. And um, he was just a different man, really, from Warner. And I think the good thing is that even though Harold came back and found himself ostracised a bit from, from cricket, I mean, he was obviously injured when he came back too. Um, and he was never as fast again, because he'd been on those very hard pitches, bowling so many overs, taking so many wickets for so long. Um, but he found it difficult to come back and settle down and just have an ordinary life. And um, I, I think it was that wasn't only that he found that he needed to exile himself from cricket, but he also needed to exile himself from Nottinghamshire, which is obviously why late in the 30s he went to Blackpool. Um, and it was an unfortunate time, really, because you talk there about Jack Fingleton going to see him in Blackpool. And he'd bought a sweet shop. And, of course, it, it seems in retrospect one of, the, one of the less sensible things to do, only because sweets were still rationed in England. And sweet rationing didn't end until 1953. And, you know, he kind of had the shop for about six years by then. Um, so he was never going to be, I mean, it was never going to be a really kind of profitable existence. Now, you mentioned the key word here, also in the book, an agent or PR. I think that was the undoing of Larwood because he didn't know how to handle the situation because when he came comes back home, he is not aware of what kind of reception he's going to get. And, of course, there's a hero's reception, and then there's a whole vulture mentality. Everybody wanted to get their hands on the story. He, he in, in haste, I would say, he puts a book out there. He gives some uh, quotes to the press. And then, you know, we all know what happened after that. And uh, so, and it's pretty easy to imagine, like, Larwood, you know, with his mining background, you know, had he come from the Oxford or, like, a more polished background, like a Jardine, it's fair to say he would have some well wishes on his side, like a PR team that would have definitely helped him, you know, uh, save his career, That's if that's the way to put it. Uh, so he definitely was a victim of, uh, I think, the circumstances. And uh, he pretty much was a one-man one army. 
Oh, yes, he was. I mean, when you think about it, that um, Gubby Allen refused to bowl Bodyline, and yet he was um, completely exonerated for refusing to follow his captain's orders because, of course, he was an amateur. So um, he escaped without any censure at all. Um, but it was made very clear to Lord when he got back that um, he would have to apologise. And he wouldn't apologise because he said, well, I was doing what my captain asked me. And he really liked um, Jardine. And, of course, we... Um, We've not uh, spoken yet, Sahib, about um, Arthur Carr, who was one of the most extraordinary county captains, I think, in the whole history of cricket, really, in which he had such an unconventional kind of life, really. And he liked to drink. He liked to combine his kind of cricket with his drinking and um, often did both simultaneously and encouraged Larwood to kind of have a beer during a match and things like that. While, um, while he was actually bowling. Um, and I think that um, he was at least fortunate, Harold Larwood, that when he came back, that he did have Arthur Carr. And Arthur Carr was at least able to take a little bit of the pressure off him, even though I think he did push him into one or two things, which unwittingly, um, as you mentioned, the kind of book deal which he did, and one or two articles that he, um, that he also subsequently did, without necessarily thinking first. No, true. And then you mentioned Carr. I was going to come to Carr, but now is a good time. So one similarity, at least for me, from listening to your book on Audible, is that loyalty, you know, ran through his veins. And especially he had a very loyal equation with both captains, Carr and then Jardine. But it's also safe to assume from my side that Carr and Jardine operated a bit differently. So... Did you find that a bit contradicting or you think loyalty was that one subset, no matter who the captain is, Larwood was so old school and he believed in respect and all those proper etiquette, respect your elder, respect your skipper. So I found it slightly uh, of a conflict, like how loyalty was the end subset, but then the both men who captained him went about the business kind of differently. At least that's what I saw, but what's your recollection uh, and an impression of the two captains? Well, I think basically that, in Larwood's eyes, you had to earn loyalty and he had to respect both of the both of the people that he actually played under. And he wasn't always, I mean, he didn't always agree with some of his other captains. But I think that he saw in Carr and Jardine, despite the fact that they were vastly different personalities, that they had his best interests at heart and they were prepared to support him. And I think that he showed... Um, loyalty, if loyalty was shown to him. Um, I mean, you think about that Knotts team of the 20s and early 30s, which Carl was in charge of. And, um, I mean, it was very much um, a team of the times, insofar as most of the players, like Larwood, had been down the mine. And they were captained by a tough who was obviously Carr, and yet he and um, yet he made himself part of the team and not a, a part from it. And he would take them out on these enormous evening kind of benders, and uh, they would be sort of drinking until the early hours, and then everybody would just go and play the next morning, um, because Carr, in particular, 
didn't didn't only want to win, but he wanted it to be fun. Um, I think um, I think he got bored very very easily, and um, <clears throat> and he was a very courageous player. I mean, he would stand up to fast bowling, and um, and, and and he would um, make sure that a game that was probably going nowhere, he would make a match of it. <clears throat> and I think that's that is the reason why he had so much loyalty not only from Larwood, but also from the rest of the team. And that Knott's side really fell apart once he kind of left it. No, interesting. And throughout the book, there's like great detailed account. At least, you know, you keep developing uh, the equation, how it's going to play out with Bradman. And it's, it's fair to say both Carr and Jardine were quite instrumental in their own ways. Because I think at the Trent Bridge, Nottingham days, uh, I think it's pretty clear in your book that Carr also dismissed Bradman as being a conceited, arrogant fellow who was great at cricket, but he was it was impossible to loosen up to Bradman to have any kind of non-cricket mm-hmm. conversation. And I think that ca- carried over because Larwood, I think, to me, reading the book, uh, kind of inherited this stance from Carr. And then, of course, uh, Jardine's, you know, missing out that 100 <laughs> while playing for Oxford. If that triggered body line, I think that's one of the best kept secrets for me. Maybe people who are well read were aware of this. So you think uh, both these captains, again, combining them again, uh, even though they came from different vantage points, you think they had a huge Im- invisible hand in there, uh, how Larwood would see Bradman forever? Oh, yes. I, I, I mean, I think so. I mean, obviously, um, Larwood. Um, Larwood and Bradman certainly didn't get on and they didn't get on later in life either. Um, and I thought to myself when I was writing the book, cause I knew it was going to come out in Australia and I wondered, you know, whether or not I might get angry letters from people there who would say, you've been a bit unfair on um, Bradman. But I think when you rack up the evidence um, and I didn't receive any, actually um, when you kind of rack up the evidence um, Bradman was just a loner, really. Um, I mean, he was a fantastic batsman. I would love to have seen him play. Um, would love to have watched him bat. And of course, there are not many people around now who kind of did, I suppose. Um, but he was a very odd fish. Um, kept himself to himself. Um, I think he was very polite to the people who followed him in terms of, you know, his fans. And he was very dedicated in going back to his room after a day's play and answering the letters, which he, which he kind of got. But you find that he was a bit cold. Um, and, and so there's a kind of separateness there with, uh, with him. And similarly, uh, I, think it's, I, I think it's fair to say that um, Larwood thought he, he, uh, that he really was vulnerable to the short ball and that he didn't have as much kind of pluck, I should say, as some of the other players. Um, and of course, Fingleton didn't uh, like Carvis. He never got, uh, so, um, didn't like um, um, Bradman either. He, um, I mean, he just never got on with him. And I think that um, there's such a difference between Fingleton and Bradman in terms of also the way that they saw the game. Um I mean, it was a fascinating, fascinating series for so for so many reasons, essentially because it was all about personality. 
No, I think it's very true about personality. Even though tennis is an individual <laughs> game, and I've spent a lifetime idolizing Boris Becker, who of course is in a lot of trouble these days. Absolutely, but, uh, yeah. Uh, even though tennis is an individual game, every time he wore he donned the German colors, uh, his relation with fellow German players. Uh, Michael Steak, Nicholas Kiefer, Tommy Haas has been very questionable. He wanted to be the alpha in the room, and the moment he sensed that was threatened, then I don't want to say real Becker, but you know, now I'm, I'm okay. I'm in my 40s. Even though I lie a man, I know he's flawed, and that's I think where I think this book also shows Bradman's insecurities later on. But uh, let's stick to some of the Nottingham days, where Carr also encouraged body line. Uh, or the leg side theory bowling in lead up to the ashes. So, so in 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 your research, what was Carr's relationship with Jardine? Uh, was there a relationship? Uh, why did he jump on that bandwagon, or there was a common goal to just uh, make Bradman look second best? Yes, well, of Carr, uh, of course, Carr had been uh, um, had played for England and had captain England, and and I think that there was a common goal, and I think that there was. I think that um, Carr was very instrumental in kind of guiding Jardine down the path to get the best out of both Larwood and Vos, and that he was. I mean, it's a. I mean, it's a shame really that he wasn't there as opposed to reading about it at home because I think he would have been very useful to someone like uh, Jardine had he been able to go out on the tour because, of course, very few people went. Um, and he, I, I think he saw in Jardine someone who could be as ruthless as he could be. Um, I think that's what really uh, uh, attracted those two uh, men as their uh, captains. And so I think he really was the kind of link between um, the kind of Nottinghamshire attitude towards fast bowling and um, I, th- I think both Carr and um, Jardine had the same outlook towards Bradman that somehow they wanted to beat him and they didn't just want to beat him they 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 kind of wanted to make him suffer a little bit um, and that's exactly what they did No, that's, that, that really shines through this account in the book mm-hmm. and um, I kept waiting uh, <laughs> when I was uh, listening to the book that Larwood should have a fallout with Jardine and blame him, but the loyalty stood back. And then I realized as the book progressed, Jardine also cared about Larwood, the dinner before Larwood is leaving to Australia, coming to see him in Australia. So it was a very platonic relationship. So did you feel like Jardine, of course, we know he, he dodged the bullet in terms of the wrath that comes around body line. He probably got some of it, but he really came unscarred compared to Larwood. So obvious guess is because he comes from influence but uh, what's your what's your uh, view on the Jardine uh, postmortem for body line? Why he was not such a big casualty when it's all said and done? Well, well, yet again, I mean, he was. I mean, he came from the kind of amateur background, and at uh, Lords, you didn't tend to um, rebuke your captains publicly, um, and I think that Jardine also knew when to get out of the firing line. I mean, he didn't come back and say anything terribly controversial, certainly not as controversially as Howard Larwood did. Um, And I think also, as far as Jardine was concerned, that although cricket was important, it wasn't the be and end all, because he could go and earn his living in other ways. 
Um, whereas, of course, for people like Harold Larwood, there weren't many other things he could do. I mean, he'd obviously accrued some money during his playing days, but not enough to make himself comfortable. And there were then few openings um, open to him other than to go back down a coal mine. And you didn't want to do that um, when you'd actually got out of the pit. You certainly didn't want to go back down. Um, but I think as far as Jardine is concerned, that he, that even, even during the kind of rest of the 30s, the 40s and into the 50s, um, there was still a kind of tenderness there towards Larwood and still a kind of, I wouldn't say fatherly, but certainly brotherly, I suppose, concerned that he was okay and that he would be okay. And that, um, of course, he went to his own expense and he made all these ashtrays for for each of the team. And um, obviously I've held the one that he gave to Harold Larwood, which is still in the family's possession. Um, and Larwood kept that by his chair when he lived in Sydney. Uh, it was just amazing, really. And he always... Um, would talk very fondly about Jardine, you know, even long after Jardine had died. Yeah, I'm the grateful skipper. <laughs> that's that's kind of touching. So, I mean, you can't talk about the life Larwood led, the exile he had from English cricket, and you have to talk about the influential men, the decision makers of the MCC, for long being the custodians of the game. Uh, how did your generation see those uh, those positions change because it was like a very self-indulgent kind of a role because they, they all celebrated body line. But the moment you see the smoke coming out of it and it's such a big colossal accident, they wanted no part of it. So how, how's the history in that room change? I know like now it's ICC, but till MCC ran uh, cricket. So you think uh, there was this, uh, how do I say it politely? You think there was this uh, mentality where uh, they are better than everyone else. And uh, did that change uh, using the, the Larwood incident? Or have you paid attention to the decision-making coming out of MCC? You know, I, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think that it ever changed. I think that they found that they considered themselves to be above everybody else and that they could ride any storm and that their vision of what uh, cricket was and what it should be and the distinction between amateur and professionals and whether it was important or not, whether you'd been to Oxford or Cambridge or which public school you'd been to. And it's funny because yesterday I was I was at Lancashire and I was speaking at the Cardis lunch, the Neville Cardis lunch. And I wrote um, a book uh, called The Great Romantic about Neville Cardis. And there are some similarities really between the kind of treatment that Harold Lowell got and the kind of treatment that Neville Cardus got, because Neville Cardus came from a very working class background. His mother was a, a, um, a kind of part-time prostitute, and so was his aunt. And <clears throat> when he actually wrote about this, and he admitted it in um, after the Second World War, um, and the book came out, when he tried to become an MCC member, they would always block him. Uh, I mean, they blocked him for about 12 years before he was actually um, made an MCC member. And most of the press box, which he was, which he was working alongside, uh, were made MCC members long before, long before he was. And the MCC had this uh, 
really had this thing about, um, you know, workers should know their place, really, um, because 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 that's the way it was seen seen there then that uh, that if you went to um, a kind of public school and you went to one of the top universities, um, then and it didn't really matter how how um, how kind of good you were, as long as you were reasonably good, then you could actually get into a team or you could join the MCC or you could even get on the uh, get onto the MCC committee. Whereas if you came from the gap um, from the kind of backgrounds that both Larwood and Cardis came from, it was almost impossible for you to actually get on. Yeah, that kind of brings like so many you know cliches that you hear about English cricket. Of course, none of those are true now. It's international sport. Like uh, men with position and dignified backgrounds were batsmen, and and the the workers were bowlers. And this was like one case that brought that whole experience to life for me and how he was treated. So let's move on to Larwood as we wrap this up in the next few minutes. Uh, you you paint him like you know like some sort of a conflict, like a Hamlet, right? He's so dying from within to talk about body line, but then he has this steely resolve. He never. He never gives up on any invite after, you know, like he moved from Nottingham to open up about it, even though you keep reminding us in the book that, you know, he wanted to talk about it, but he was just so strong-willed that the conflict is just amazing. You know, you start you start finding a place in his head and then until his wife, you know, comes to the rescue and uh, makes him open up to Fingleton's invite and, you know, some of the decisions that follow. But uh, his resolve just stands out in this book, despite all the conflicted emotions he's going through. Well, I think that's absolutely right because um, I think one of the most, I mean, I think the book has several kind of turning points really. And the centenary test is the kind of turning point which brings him back into the cricket community. And just as Jack Fingleton took him to Sydney in the first place, then he took him to the, or he persuaded him to go to the, centenary test in Melbourne and obviously Larwood and his wife went and he was expecting to get a rather rough reception from some people and 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 yet he was wi- um, widely loved and the cues for his autograph were enormous the pressures on his time were amazing and when I went to see Harold's uh, daughter Enid um, um, and she lived she lives on the, or, or, or she lived, um, suddenly she died a few years ago now, um, on the New South Wales Queensland border. And um, we went, to, uh, my wife and I went to her house and she brought out this kind of plastic, plastic box. And inside there were all the letters that he had written her because he he didn't mind answering the front door, but he didn't like answering the phone. So he liked to write letters um, when he could, or his um, or his wife would write letters for him. But some of the letters that he wrote back from Melbourne in the centenary test were just lovely because he he kind of realised that everybody had forgotten some of the negative things about Bodyline and were re- and they were really fascinated with him as a person and that his personal story to them was one of resolution and they blamed the MCC for the way that he was treated more than they blamed him for following the orders of his captain. And, and I mean, Harold 
I mean, Harold's life after that was slightly transformed, I think, in a way, because then even more people made a kind of beeline for his door to go and speak to him or to go and get his autograph. Um, and I, I, I just found that really touching. No, it is incredibly touching. And uh, I think somewhere in those paragraphs, or those chapters, actually, rather, when he's planning his move to Australia on Fingleton's suggestion, uh, and then there's also the uh, the friendship, the breakup with uh, his buddy, Vose. So it, 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 to me, it stands out like, you know, the kind of personality he was, even though it was a team effort, he took the onus on whole body line on himself. And then it became such a huge shatter to escape. And Vose, who was an equal or like his partner in crime there, along with Jardine, uh, didn't face some of the repercussions because... He just stayed out of it. Is it a fair conclusion or you think Larwood had it coming regardless? Well, I think, to be honest with you, they would have, um, I mean, they certainly were were looking once they got back and once all the dust was settling, um, that they kind of wanted to say, uh, sorry, this is uh, the MCC, to say, well, it had nothing to do with us. It was the captain's decision and the bowlers decided to bowl body line and we condemn that etc etc um i think the difference was and it was a brief falling out with bill vose because bill vose needed to go really on the uh, 36 7 tour um and gilby allen wanted to take him on that tour because really he was i mean he was one of their best options i mean harold didn't have the pace i mean he's i mean he lost his pace at, uh, while he was still a very accurate bowler. Still had a lot of wickets that season, right? Yeah. I, I mean, he didn't have the kick, though. That is the thing. That he wouldn't have had the kick, I think, to go back to the uh, onto the Australian pitches and cause the same kind of mayhem that he caused four years earlier. Uh, but, of course, they wanted him to apologise before he went, and he would not apologise. And yet, and, and so that's what caused the rift for a short while between between him and Bill Bowes. Yeah, and that's one of my favorite chapters. So I hope, you know, more listeners who haven't read that book get the hand of it. It was very, uh, I don't know, uh, I'm not well versed in Shakespeare, but I think there was the, the breakup there, uh, how both men uh, don't understand each other and Bowes has this need to support his family and MCC kind of plays him to come back and then they exchange private words and the friendship was never the same. It has like such a intense feel and so much irony in there. Uh, how Lawood doesn't understand uh, his best friend's needs, and but at the same time he's very isolated. So I would, yeah, I wouldn't go much into those details, but yeah, I think that's one of my favorite chapters. So I think it goes back, um, sorry, to to the um, um, kind of point I made right at the beginning is that i mean it, it it just even transcends fiction really doesn't it because there are so many little bits about it i mean it's a kind of saga that could have been written by 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 someone like arnold bennett or aj cronin or jb priestley here i mean it is just sort of like one long one long fictional saga but it actually happened no it is and it's, it's so funny that you said that because i was thinking that again you know uh, with my limited capacity of uh, watching TV, I compare that breakup in the wire with, uh, with Stringer Bell and uh, Barksdale <laughs> because, of course, they're both little, little con- they're little cunning, but they're both yeah, hurt absolutely. because they both feel betrayal. 
Here, yes. Vos is not betraying him, but he's just putting family first. And Lauer just feels like the most lonely man in England because yes. his his best friend is, uh, yeah, not, not seeing the equation in the similar vein. Uh, but again, you know, like if we uh, stick to the key characters here, you know, to study Harold Lauer and understand his trials and tribulations, John Bradman is a must. And of course, he's the most celebrated cricketer of all time. But I think uh, what I've realized like I gave Boris Becker's example. Now I will throw Michael Jordan in there. Some of the most beloved cricketers, or even Imran Khan in cricket, you know, their their larger-than-life persona has a price. There's an opportunity cost. When we look at what they did, we glorify them, but there's an ugly side to it. Who they, <laughs> uh, who they didn't get along with. Who they impacted decision-wise, right? So similarly, I don't know like what the, in your book what Bradman's equation was with Cricket Australia, but when he became the man of prominence after even his retirement, the whole throwing uh, insinuation at Larwood, I think that was very insecure because his legacy is like no one else's. And again, I don't want to offend anyone who listens to this podcast who's a Bradman lover. I think multiple realities can coexist. And that account kind of made me think, you know, he's the most worshipped guy cricket has ever seen. And even in his like, uh, you know, twilight of his retirement, he wanted to erase the memory of that series by making Haralawat's action illegal. And that is the insecurity that I've seen in Jordan. I've seen in Becker. Uh, you know, I see in some modern players. It's maybe it's it's the it's the impulse that makes him great. But at the same time, I think all these great men are flawed. I mean, not want to single out Bradman, but that just stood out for me as a reader of this book. Well, actually, I mean, I mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation that about Richie, uh, about Richie Benno. And of course, Richie Benno w- was actually one of the few people who was um, shown the films when, when Bradman was trying to convince everybody that Larwood had thrown. And... Um, Richie was always very conscious not to get involved in the bodyline argument, whether it was fair, wasn't whether it wasn't fair, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but he did say to me that um, when uh, because at first Bradman reversed the film, so it looked like a left arm bowler, and then he um, showed it from the um, showed it properly, and it was the kind of um, you know, obviously kind of Harold Larwood, obviously bowling right on because the film hadn't been reversed. And Richie Benno said he thought his action was fine. And I think if Richie Benno says that to you, I think you were, uh, I think it's 195% certain that that action was okay. But we go back to, and, and the kind of really relationship there, and I've just, uh, we were talking before about, you know, how much fictional, uh, 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 how uh, fictional it seems, and I mean, um, sorry, what what kind of odds would you have put that on one day in Sydney, um, where where Bradman doesn't know that Larwood will be there, and Larwood doesn't know that Bradman will be there, and they both turn a corner at the same time and find themselves meeting in the middle of the city? Oh, that, I mean, was, that was that was priceless. <laughs> And yeah, you know, this is truth is stranger than fiction kind of moment. And the other word that you mentioned is a very simple word, but it's a lot of heavy connotation is fame. Because a lot of times when we try to own these sporting figures or these iconic names, it's really hard to go in their head. You know, 
because I, I, again, I, I even take back calling Bradman insecure because I don't even know what it feels to be a master of the craft and such a, a legacy figure. So what bothered him? He wanted to erase that memory. So it's very complex. And yeah, I can sit here from my living room and comfort say, oh, this is bad, this is good, he's insecure. But no, I think this is a little deeper than that. Larwood is trying to erase the ghost of the past. And Bradman, despite all the celebrations, wanted to erase that series and make this bowling action illegal. So I think that speaks volumes without taking any sides. That just gives how complex these things are. Yes, I mean, it's peculiar, isn't it, that um, throughout his glittering career, and he did so much, Bradman, scored so many runs, the greatest batsman who ever lived, yet he could never forget Bodyline. And I don't think he could ever forgive Bodyline either. Um, Because it would have been very easy, I think. And while, um, well, while there were very cordial meeting in the the middle of um, Sydney, um, there would have been opportunities for Bradman to invite him to a game, to, to kind of sit beside him at a match or something like that. And yet he never did that. And he, or he never visited him in Sydney, never made an invitation to go and meet him in Sydney. And of course, when Bradman made the speech at the, at the centenary test where both um, Larwood and Vos were, and he said, well, we will pass over the body line. Uh, well, he didn't even use the word body line. We shall pass over those years that he wouldn't even even mentioned 32-3 in his speech. Um, Absolutely. All right, so let's wrap this up in the next few minutes. And uh, you said you, men- you mentioned that you, of course, for the research, you went on to meet his daughters uh, in Australia. Uh, so just want to pick your brain. For this kind of an account, even though Larwood is not like, you know, an ancient figure, he lived as late as 95. What kind of research went on to this book to make it a reality? And what were your, uh, what, what are some of the, you know, painful exercises you have to do? to get this person back into life on our tablets, on our books? And, uh, and is there any, any parts that didn't make the book that you think were interesting enough, but you, know, you could only tell a story in so many words? Well, I think one of the, one of the lucky things that um, if you're writing about a figure from the past, and let's just take cricket as a perfect example, really. These days, um, a test cricketer has probably been signed up by the county that he plays for, and he has probably played against most of the people he will play with for the England team, for example, since he was nine or 10. I remember um, I did a book with Johnny Bairstow. I helped Johnny Bairstow with his autobiography. And um, I just said to him, and I don't know why it popped in mind. I said, well, when, uh, oh, I know why it was because, Johnny had, uh, had scored his first test century in a fantastic um, uh, partnership with Ben Stokes. And I said to him, when did you first play against Ben Stokes or when did you first meet him? And he discovered that they'd been playing together since they were about 11. Um, so they'd known each other for kind of that sort of long. But it means that when you're writing a book um, uh, about someone from the modern era, unless they've got a fantastic um, backstory, it is essentially, um, they came, uh, um, they were signed by a county, they played for the county, um, they got called up by the test team and that's it. Obviously now too, that nobody writes letters. And I knew that there would be some Harold Larwood letters 
somewhere. And I was very lucky with Harold too, because um, he kept everything. So he kept bus tickets and things like that. And, um, and menus and postcards and lots and lots and lots of things. And obviously all those are kept at the Bradman Museum of, of uh, cricket, which is quite ironic, really, um, or or at least most of them were. But the but the family had held some things back, and I was able to see them. But in terms of research, it was basically um, you know talking to people who had known Harold Larwood. I mean, obviously, I talked to someone I was when I was a journalist in Nottingham, um, and then it was going through an awful lot of newspapers, um, trying to trying to decide what would make the book and what didn't make the book. I don't think I left anything out that was particularly significant. Um, but like most books, it could have been longer, I suppose. Um, but, uh, but in the end, rather like somebody editing a film, you've actually got to try and decide what will captivate the reader and what will move the story forward. No, absolutely. I wanted more of it in the end, and you were absolutely right. Uh, with this kind of a character... Uh, deserves his farewell in, in a way and, you know, will live forever in, in our memories. And I think it's poignant to even fact like the John Arlett uh, goodbye when Larwood is emigrating to Australia. I think that's that scene, I imagine it's like a film, like, uh, you know, and it's raining that day. I mean, it is just, like you said, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's as good as fiction. You know, the skies are crying and he's leaving. And then there's one member of the press who, who felt the need, who had seen him as a young man, who felt the need to cover that, you know, the, or that sea off. You think, uh, is Arlett associated one of the few leading voices that kind of revived the Larwood image for the generation oh, I mean, followed? Think, well, I think we were so fortunate that the one man who decided to go and see him off was actually John Arlett. Uh, and, and it wasn't easy in those days because um, John Arlett was still living in Hampshire and he had to get from... And he had to get from Hampshire um, down to, I think it was Essex where they left from. And, and, and so, I mean, that wasn't easy by car, even in those days, because, you know, the roads weren't fantastic. Um, but we're so fortunate that somebody who could write went and was able then to put it into words because he, I mean, he, um, he published his, his article either the following day or the day after in the London Evening News um, for whom he wrote fairly regularly. I mean, he was a freelance, uh, of course, John. Um, and out of all the people uh, that particular era that you would have wanted to be there, it, I mean, you would have wanted John Arlott to go and cover it because you knew that you would get just a lovely scene set. Um, and because without it, you'd have been asking yourself so many questions, I think, about the way the place looked and um, how many other people were there and sitting on the boat um, just before it went off, having their cup of tea. And it's just a beautiful little piece. Beautiful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if it didn't happen, it wouldn't have taken away anything from the book, but it's so fitting that it happened that way that he was there <laughs> to see him leave. Uh, again, I asked you this while we were talking earlier. Uh, I think there's so many chapters in here. It could be a mini series on Netflix or someplace. So, uh, would you like to see this happen one day? I know you said few people might have approached you. I would. I mean, we. I mean, I've. I have sold the film rights, or they've renewed the film rights, 
about three or four times, but they've just found it very difficult. There was a time when they got a director, but they didn't have an actor. There was a time when they had an actor, but they didn't have a director. Um, it's, I mean, cricket films are just very difficult to sell, obviously, in the in the USA. I talked to David Putnam, who had made Chariots of Fire, and he wanted to do a, a bodyline film after Chariots of Fire, but he decided that he couldn't do it. Um, he, he, he just couldn't convince people in America that an American audience would want to watch cricket. But also he realised that he would have to take out LBW so that all the wickets would have to be caught behind or bowled because it would just be too complicated because they because then you'd have to explain to an American audience um, how well, you were out LBW. Um, mm. And I always found that quite funny, really. I mean, it's so much easier, isn't it, with with something like baseball, because, um, you know, I mean, it's a very simple, simple kind of game to game to follow. Uh, but as but as beautiful as cricket can there can there be. Um, it's the same with American football, where you can stop and start the action. Um, I mean, football is very difficult because you've because you've actually got to look like a football. Obviously, I'm talking about soccer here. Uh, you've actually got to look like a soccer player. Um, I, I think, as I said to you before, you know that, that you can probably get away with tennis, but cricket is is very difficult. And I think it was shown in the mini series um, that was um, that was televised in Australia and then came over to England in the mid eighties because um, some of the batting and some of the bowling styles are a bit ropey, to say the least. I think. <laughs> But it, but it was still fascinating to me. No, it'll be an incredible account if ever it gets to screen. And in my mind, I have Tom Hardy as Harold Lawwood. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, this is quite a brilliant book. And thank you for this chat. And I would like to close this with a remark from the book. I think that just will stay with, for me for a long time. No one who was at the epicenter of Bodyline came out of it without being wounded in some way, especially Woodfull, Jardine, the Don and Harold Lawwood. And I think that's how they all went about their business. And it's impossible to cover everything. So I'd encourage my listeners, if you haven't read the book, go get it. If uh, you have read it, revisit it, because it definitely shaped my view of cricket. And uh, even though I'm a bigger tennis fan, but I think there's the romanticism and the the tragic element that is part of cricket. I don't think it exists anywhere close in tennis. And I can even ignorantly say it doesn't even exist in other sports. And he's uh, Duncan Hamilton, one of the most recognized writers of our times, winner of the Wisden Cricket Award for the writers, William Hill Sportsbook Award. And like the Bearstow book, there's so much. If you Google up uh, Duncan on Amazon, there's such great uh, work that's out there. And uh, I'm going to go for George Best after this, even though I'm a football novice. I'm taking the chance because what I learned from Larwood. Thank you, Duncan, for the generosity. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Take care.